0: Welcome to Some Very Famous People You've Never Really Heard Of, bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Leonard Sapala, and the Alaskan hero dogs Balto and Togo. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Or even read it for free on Kindle Unlimited. Now let's get started with our story about Leonard Sapala. On January 20th, 1925, in the city of Nome, Alaska, a doctor by the name of Curtis Welch made a frightening diagnosis. For three previous weeks, Welch treated several children for throat ailments that he presumed to be tonsillitis or strep. Welch could admit the very sick to a 21-bed hospital, and on the 20th, he checked on a three-year-old boy named Billy Barnett, who was also having issues related to a sore throat, swollen glands, and a high fever. Still, after two weeks, the child showed no sign of improvement and in the interim developed additional symptoms that included dark, thick throat and nasal lesions. For Welsh and the people of Nome, this observation was especially troubling because it indicated the unmistakable symptoms of a much more serious disease, diphtheria. Welch watched helplessly as Billy's condition worsened and the boy finally died. Beginning in November, Nome was completely socked in for seven months by the solid ice that prevented any access by ship until June. Whatever supplies meant to get the northwestern Alaskan coastal town, only two degrees south of the Arctic Circle, through the winter, had been offloaded months ago by the last ship that then departed, leaving Nome completely isolated until the spring. Welsh already knew he had virtually no serum to use on any other victims of diphtheria, having ordered the substance the previous summer. When his hospital supplies were delivered, the serum was omitted. He would have to make do with the 6,000 units of expired antitoxin on hand. Back in the fall of 1924, Welsh had no choice but to hope that no one came down with the disease. But here he was, confronted by the unthinkable. The establishment of a town in such a remote and forbidding location was actually an unplanned spontaneous event that resulted from gold being discovered in the area in mid-September 1898. Rich deposits of the metal were discovered initially by three individuals who were eventually nicknamed the Three Lucky Swedes. Eric Lindblom, John Bernson, and Jafet Lindberg, who was actually Norwegian. This group located these valuable sites in the Anvil Creek and Snake River waterways a few miles off of the coast of the Bering Sea. They legally registered their claims before word of the find became public knowledge elsewhere. However, news of this discovery quickly made it to the outside world, and especially to the Klondike region, where a previous 1897 gold rush had drawn over 100,000 potential prospectors. By the spring of 1899, most of the gold in the Klondike was either already gone or unavailable to the vast horde that overran the region. Many in this frustrated group immediately headed to the Cape Nome area to try and strike it rich there. From the remote Klondike in the Yukon Territory, Much of the journey to the northwest coast of Alaska was by ship, as Cape Nome was clear across Alaska without any paved overland access. Initially, a similar scenario ensued where the massive stampede that got to Nome was met with a landscape already staked out by the fortunate insiders who were in on the best and richest opportunities from the beginning. But this time, gold was discovered literally on the beaches around the harborless Landing area. Because a claim could not be legally filed for the beach, the stampede then focused its attention on the waterfront where gold was easily mined in large quantities. The inevitable boom town sprung up, with all of the typical licit and illicit camp followers of the day more than happy to share in the prosperity generated by the arduous labor of the mining community. At its height in 1900, the town of Nome numbered 20,000 inhabitants. But only a few individuals, like the three lucky Swedes, were able to generate any real worth or permanent business infrastructure. Most of the population left. In 1909, only 2,500 residents remained. But by then, a municipal infrastructure had been implemented, and the mining and various other mercantile pursuits established Nome as a permanent city. Day-to-day existence in Nome still remained difficult. All of its residents were keenly aware of the seasonal conditions and the date that the last ship was due to sail for the lower 48, usually in October. After that, there was no way to leave until the following spring. There was one exception to this logistical isolation. Over time, the tiny hamlets and villages of Alaska's interior were connected by pathways that were navigable by foot and by the only visible means of transportation, dog sled. Horse-drawn vehicles were useless. The severe winter weather conditions found in the Alaskan interior would kill a horse or any similar beast of burden in a matter of hours and possibly minutes. Mail delivery was accomplished by routes that were sold by concession. The entities who obtained these routes obligated to deliver mail regardless of the conditions. This was still the fundamental logistical system confronting Curtis Welsh in January of 1925. At a hastily convened meeting with the mayor, George Maynard, and the town council, which consisted of several of the town's most prominent businessmen, Dr. Welsh explained that based on the recent deaths of three children, from what he was confident was diphtheria, the town needed to quarantine immediately. He also explained that he might potentially need in the neighborhood of one million injectable units of serum to combat the disease, the only known treatment at the time. The serum was derived from horses exposed to the diphtheria toxin and the antibodies they developed. Nome was hit especially hard by the influenza epidemic of 1918, so the town fathers were fully aware of the consequences of inaction. One of the meeting's participants was Mark Summers, the superintendent of the nearby Hammond Consolidated Goldfields. Summers broached the idea of an express relay dog sled delivery of the serum from the central Alaskan town of Ninana, the northernmost railhead of a route that began in the southernmost coastal port of Seward. To speed up delivery, Summers proposed that a dog musher leave Nome and meet the shipment halfway and then turn around and return it to Nome. Summers believed that this would be faster based on the man he had in mind for the job, Leonard Cipolla. Sopala was employed by Hammond Gold as its main dog driver and the supervisor of freight logistics into the remote areas and mining camps that the company operated. But Sopala was also known as the premier dog sled racer in the region, having won numerous competitions that were a high-profile Alaskan pursuit. A Norwegian and a friend of Jafit Lindbergh, he emigrated to Nome in 1900 at the height of the gold rush that established the city. The town council's approval of the idea was immediate. Mayor Maynard made an additional suggestion that they consider flying the serum into Nome. While it was agreed that no option should be dismissed out of hand, most of the men present were skeptical that the open-air biplanes available would safely make it in the dead of winter. Maynard suggested that he contact the Alaskan delegate to the U.S. Congress, Dan Sutherland, to apprise him of the situation, and to encourage him to assemble any airborne attempt to deliver the serum. When Sutherland received Maynard's telegram, he immediately sprung into action. Many Alaskans believed that lucrative air shipping routes across the territory were only a matter of time, and this might be just the opportunity to demonstrate how much more efficient this method of shipping was compared to 19th century dog sled technology. Leonard Sopala got word from his boss about the impending mission and began his own preparation. At age 47, he was still in excellent shape, even after spending years in the Alaskan wilderness. It was originally thought that Sapala would travel over 300 miles to Nulato, the small outpost that was midway between Nome and Nenana. Although his sled was to carry a comparatively light load, he decided that he would assemble a team of 20 dogs out of the animal's currently maintained in his kennel. He planned to leave some of the dogs off on the trail along the way, so that on the way back he could replace tired animals with rested ones. Sopala's team was not a casual selection of canines randomly thrown together. Alaskan dog sleds were comprised of a unit that was usually harnessed in pairs, the two lead dogs the most important of the group. Their initiative dictated a pace to the rest of the pack, and their intelligence and instincts Sense danger, frequently when the sled driver was unable to discern an oncoming barrier or problem due to weather conditions and visibility. The wheel dogs were closer to the sled driver. They tended to be the strongest of the team and were best able to propel a sled through deep snow drifts and up hills. Team dogs filled out the group. Sopala's animals were typically Siberian huskies. Some were partially Alaskan Malamute. But the Siberian Husky had supplanted this native Alaskan breed after being introduced to Alaska in the early twentieth century. While the thick-shouldered Malamutes applied great strength in pulling freight on dog sleds, surprisingly they could not match the speed or endurance of the smaller Siberian Husky. Alaskan dog sled competitions eventually came to be dominated by racers who quickly recognized the import's attributes. Sopala first entered the premier All-Alaska Sweepstakes in 1914, a 280-mile, four-day event that drew territory-wide attention, especially from gamblers. In his first attempt, Sopala and his team were almost killed when his dogs lost the trail in a blizzard and came within 20 feet of plunging off of a 600-foot cliff into the Bering Sea. Having learned from this experience, Sopala then won the competition three years in a row, his string of victories only interrupted by the outbreak of World War I. During his successful racing career, Sopala's lead dog was named Sugan, and this part Malamute, part Siberian Husky, subsequently sired many puppies for Sopala. By 1925, Sugan had been replaced by his son, Togo, a diminutive animal, initially a runt believed too small to have any future as a sled dog. Named after the victorious Japanese admiral at the Battle of Tsushima, at age six months, Sopala gave the dog away, its new owner maintaining the canine as a pet. Within a few weeks, Togo escaped from his new home by leaping through a glass window and returning to Sopala's kennel, a journey of several miles that impressed the dog trainer enough to prompt Sopala to keep the dog. But the puppy proved difficult to train, frequently breaking out of the kennel to follow Sopala when left behind and off of the team. On the trail, Togo would distract the group to the extent that Sopala finally decided to harness the dog, if only to control him. Immediately, the younger dog responded, able to keep up with the older, larger animals on runs that frequently totaled 75 miles a day. Sopala came to believe that Togo, 48 pounds at its heaviest weight, was a once in a lifetime prodigy that he quickly trained and ultimately designated as a lead dog. By 1925, Togo, aged 12, was so respected by Sapala that he frequently placed the dog by himself with a long lead in front of the other dogs. This designation was as much a precaution as it was a device to get the greatest speed and efficiency out of the sled team. In a 1927 interview with a Boston newspaper, Leonard Sapala related a story about Togo that, even if it is greatly embellished, conveys the bond between man and sled dog, a relationship that, in the unforgiving Alaskan wilderness, could easily mean the difference between life and death. By far the most dangerous stretch between Nome and the Alaskan interior was a shortcut about 120 miles east of Nome, In the winter, a sled driver could choose between staying on the trail and hugging the coastline or heading directly southeast across the frozen Norton Bay. This shortcut could save an entire day, but also was fraught with dangerous obstacles, including ice collapsing into the seawater below, unfrozen areas invisible during blizzard and whiteout conditions, and most terrifying, whole ice flows shearing off into open water, stranding man and sled as the block of ice quickly moved out into the open sea. Sopala was subjected to this experience firsthand when once before, heading north toward Nome, with Togo as the lead, and already several miles offshore on Norton Bay, a huge crack suddenly separated Sopala's sled from the mainland. Togo immediately headed away from the crack into the most direct route to land, but then came to an abrupt stop, practically jumping backward into the team. Unnerved and barely able to see, Sepala moved forward to check on the problem. He observed the Togo, stopped only a few feet in front of a rapidly widening channel. They were all now trapped on an ice flow, moving at the whim of the wind and the current. Night descended, and Sepala's only hope was that eventually an onshore breeze would bring him close enough to ice connected to the shore. It took nine hours on open water before the wind direction changed and the flow got to within five feet of solid ice and potential safety. Still too far away for the dog team to leap, Sopala claimed that he tied a rope to Togo and hurled him across the gap. A sled dog by nature, Togo immediately began to pull the line, the ice flow slowly starting to move. But then the rope abruptly snapped and dropped into the separation. Undaunted, Togo jumped into the water, grabbed the rope with his mouth, and got back on top of the nearby flow. He then was able to wrap this tow line around his body and try again to pull the two ice blocks together. Eventually the gap closed, and Sopala and his sled were able to make it safely onto stable ice and back to dry land. It is a measure of the respect for both sled driver and sled dog in Alaska that this story of Togo and Sopala has been accepted without skepticism for close to a century. Leonard Cipolla was not the only dog musher involved in a potential serum run. From Fairbanks to the coastal town of Eunocleet, essentially the part of the route across the Alaskan interior, mail carriers employed by the concessionaire, the Northern Commercial Company, were contacted by telegraph at their assigned roadhouses and told to stand by to deliver the emergency package. Although the U.S. government hastily assembled the million units necessary for Nome, This shipment would first have to reach Seattle and then make it to Seward, precipitating a process that might take as long as mid-February to arrive. Quickly, after Nome's appeal, on January 26th, 300,000 units of the vaccine were located in an Anchorage hospital. Although there still was some discussion about the potential to fly in the serum, the governor of the territory, Scott Bone, ordered unequivocally that the material was to be taken by rail to Nanana and by dog sled to Nome. Bone was the former editor of the Washington Post, a federal appointment by the president, in his case, Warren Harding, well-connected in D.C. and not interested in furthering any local Alaskan political or mercantile agendas. He knew that risking a dangerous flight that might result in the loss of the serum was indefensible, especially to the citizens of Nome. Now it was up to a handful of sled drivers and their dogs to perform under the most extreme conditions. The route from Nanana was 674 miles long. On the night of January 27th, a man named Bill Shannon waited in the small Nanana, Alaska shack that served as the junction of the mail route to Nome and the railroad from Anchorage. Shannon was the type of Alaskan who scraped out a living performing various odd jobs that included mining, fur trapping, and mail delivery via dog sled. He was determined to leave with the package as soon as the train arrived, but that arrival was unpredictable. The train left Anchorage 24 hours ago, but any schedule or arrival time was merely a suggestion. It would arrive whenever the harsh winter conditions permitted. Finally, at 11 p.m., Shannon heard the steam whistle of the locomotive. Minutes later, the conductor rushed up to Shannon with the 20-pound, carefully wrapped cylinder that contained the precious vaccine and handed it off. The local station manager attempted to get Shannon to wait until at least daylight. It was already under 40 below zero, a temperature that most considered too unsafe to travel in and getting colder. But Shannon, known locally as Wild Bill, was determined. He was experienced, had operated in such conditions before, and knew that every hour counted. Shannon left, intent on being well on his way to the roadhouse in Tolovana by early morning. By the time of his departure, it was 50 below zero. Shannon was fortunate in that 30 miles out, he would reach Minto, a small village that did have a roadhouse. Initially, the dog driver experienced nothing unusual, but the trail was rutted and rock hard, and in such extreme conditions, the path would tear up the paws and claws of his animals. Shannon was also not sure how long his dogs would be able to tolerate the extreme cold, some of the coldest weather he had ever experienced. He made the decision to switch to running upon the Tanana River itself, the waterway paralleling the sled path. This would allow for faster travel, but was also extremely dangerous. Holes and thin ice could easily swallow up a sled, especially in the middle of a pitch-black night like this. Shannon picked up speed, but started to feel the effects of the cold himself, his fingers, hands, and limbs becoming completely numb. He beat his hands against his leg and chest, trying to restore blood flow, and finally decided to dismount the sled and run alongside the dog team. He did this long enough to get his circulation flowing again and got back on the sled. But Shannon knew that he was fighting a losing battle. The only question, whether the cold finally overwhelmed both him and his dogs before he got to Minto. By now, three and a half to four hours outside of Nanana, he was experiencing the onset of hypothermia shivering and beginning to lose control of his limbs. He no longer could even run beside the sled. He could only force himself to keep slapping his chest and legs to force some meager additional circulation and hope that his dogs could withstand such trauma. As his perception of time slowed and his thoughts dimmed, he tried not to panic despite knowing that he faced danger and imminent death. It was three o'clock in the morning when Wild Bill Shannon knocked on the door of Campbell's Roadhouse in Minto. Proprietor Johnny Campbell opened up and immediately understood that Shannon was in rough shape. His face had black patches of extreme frostbite, and four of his dogs had blood-stained muzzles, but he was alive and the serum was safely brought inside. Campbell led the dogs to an outdoor shed, fed them and let them rest. Alaskan mushers believe that a dog's bleeding from the mouth and severe cold was a symptom of internal frostbite. In fact, it was the result of severe pulmonary hemorrhaging. A dog will keep running, desperately trying to keep up with the pack until rendered unconscious by oxygen deprivation and blood congestion, a condition that usually resulted in death. Normally, Shannon would stay overnight in Minto, warming up and letting his dogs rest, but in this emergency, he was told to take a reasonable break in Minto and then resume the trip to Tolavana. As he sat in the relative 50-degree warmth of the roadhouse, sipping coffee, Bill Shannon could only hope that in a few hours, his dogs would be ready and able to make the final push. Outside, it was now 62 degrees below zero. It would be four hours before he could even think of eating. Two hours later, he began the process of checking on his dogs and getting them ready to harness. Even at first glance, Shannon knew that three of the dogs would never make it. Normally, healthy, well-rested sled dogs would be barking and leaping up on their sled driver in anticipation of their work day, But these three, Cub, Jack, and Jet, were listless and could barely stand. A fourth bear also looked to be severely impacted, but Shannon figured he would put him in the harness, and if he couldn't continue, the driver could put him on the sled itself. Asked later why he would even consider heading back out into the cold, Shannon's answer was simple, I gave my word. At approximately nine o'clock in the morning, he headed off to Tolavana, telling Campbell to take care of his three dogs until he returned. At least the morning brought a slightly higher temperature of 56 below zero. Shannon did have to resort to removing bear from the harness, but in daylight, the rest of the trip was relatively uneventful, shorter, and not as harrowing as the previous night's journey. He pulled into Tolavana about 11 a.m. Waiting there was the next sled driver, Edgar Callens. Callens, a 21-year-old half Athabascan, half Newfoundlander, was another mail carrier for the Northern Commercial Company. He spent the previous day shuttling an employee of his employer to locations along the trail and delivering mail to Minto. When he got there at 5 p.m., he looked forward to resting himself and his dogs, at least overnight. Instead, he was told by telephone to go back to Tolavana and wait for Shannon to get there. The next day, with only about 12 hours of rest, Callens brought the package indoors to let it warm up for a few minutes and then headed out for his section of the run, 31 miles to Manly Hot Springs, across some of the most desolate part of the territory. For Callens, the temperature never got above 50 below zero, a condition that is hard to comprehend. Boiling water tossed into this temperature vaporized in midair. Saliva crackled and was frozen before it hit the ground and an ungloved hand exuded steam as normal perspiration became visible. In five hours, Callens got to Manly Hot Springs without a problem, although it was so cold that his gloved hands had to be removed from the sled with boiling water, a typical challenge in such extreme temperatures. By now, the serum run to Nome was not only the focus of the Alaskan Territory, but a national news story with front-page headlines and up-to-the-minute bulletins via a newly popular diversion, radio. Much of this was due to the governor's extensive media availability and connections, as well as Dan Sutherland's efforts in the nation's capital. Sutherland and Mayor Maynard also had not given up on having some of the additional Seattle anti-toxin flown in from Fairbanks. They barraged major news organizations with updates and telegrams pleading for the government to intercede with an airplane able to safely make the journey. Knowing that the Anchorage Serum was already en route, they hoped to use the military to get the Seattle shipment to Nome by air. All of these efforts were shot down by the Navy, the federal government, and by Governor Bone himself. But Bone did reassess the original plan to have Leonard Cipolla head all the way to Nulato and back to retrieve the serum and return to Nome, a round trip of 630 miles. Instead, Cipolla's part of the run was cut in half and more drivers were added. Cipolla was now to coordinate picking up the serum from another driver just south of Norton Sound near Shaktulik. The plan made sense. The only problem was who was going to tell Leonard Cipolla, who was already out on the trail and unreachable. For the moment, that detail was put on the back burner. Bone's office got in touch with Mark Summers, Sapala's boss at the Hammond Gold Company, and told him to get more sled drivers on the route back to Nome. Summers quickly coordinated more drivers all the way to the town of Unalakleet, effectively cutting Sapala's driving distance in half. Each driver was instructed to keep an eye out for Sapala, who would be heading east, still under the impression that he was picking up the package in New Lotto. Summers estimated that the package would intersect with Sapala somewhere near Shaktulik and it seemed logical to assume that whenever that intersection occurred the other driver would be able to update Sapala on the new plan and accomplish the handoff but in a whiteout blizzard or in the event of an accident or detour there were no guarantees to fill out the new team of drivers Summers contacted another one of his employees a dog driver who also worked for Leonard Cepala, Gunnar Kaysen. Summers told Kaysen to put together another team and head for the village of Bluff, about 40 miles east of Nome. When he got to Bluff, he was supposed to get the roadhouse keeper there, Charles Olson, to put together his own team and head 25 miles east to the town of Golovin and wait there. Kaysen was not completely surprised by Summers' request to assemble a team. Before his boss, Sopala, left, he made precautionary recommendations to Kaysen as to how to position another subsequent team. Kaysen went along with these recommendations, placing the dog Fox as one of the leads. But for the other dog, he chose an animal that Sopala did not particularly hold in high esteem, an unusually colored Siberian who was solid black except for a white right paw. The dog's name was Balto named after an associate of Norwegian explorer, Friedhof Nansen. At the time, Kaysen did not think about the choice very much. He had always liked working with the dog, and figured that the animal could certainly get the job done. Once the run was completed and the serum got to Nome, what difference would it make anyway? Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Leonard Cipolla. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book The Cruelest Miles by Gay Salisbury and the Sports Illustrated magazine article And You Thought We Have a Vaccine Issue by John Wertheim January thirteenth, 2021 There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com as well as information about my new novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes. And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.